Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. I'm your host, Kenneth Anderson. Uh, tonight, our guest is Peter Myers, Ph.D. He is the author of Becoming a Substance Abuse Counselor. He is the editor-in-chief of uh, the journal Ethnicity and Substance Abuse, and we'll bring him on in a minute right here. First, I'm going to do a little blurb for our website and our book. Our website is hamsnetwork.org. We are a free of charge lay support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking habits. <clears throat> from safer drinking to reduced drinking to putting all together and our book is called How to Change Your Drinking A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol it's available from Amazon for more information go to hamsnetwork.org slash book our guest Peter Myers is with us right now we're bringing him on here he is okay. Peter how are you doing this evening? fine nice evening well it's great to have you <laughs> it's great to have you on the show um, tell us a little bit about your book about becoming a substance abuse counselor. Well, it's called Becoming an Addictions Counselor, a comprehensive text that I'm the co-author with Norman Salt, uh, who is the director of training for the state agency that handles addictions in New Jersey. And I knew him, you know, through various committees because I was teaching full-time in New Jersey running an addiction counselor training program. So he he came up with the idea of putting this down in a book, and you know, uh, we had a lot of fun writing it. We think it's the most up-to-date of the addictions texts because it has an entire chapter on motivational interviewing, which is the up-and-coming thing of uh, Miller and Ronick, and um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and uh, recovery-oriented systems of care has another chapter, so that's pretty pioneering. And um, we, um, we're in our third edition, and uh, I've written some courses based on it for various online institutions. I'm doing one now for Ottawa University, which I was embarrassed to find out was not in Canada, but in Kansas. And um, <laughs> so that's it. Go ahead. No, no, no. Keep going. Um, I've also uh, editing a series for ABC Clio called The Story of a Drug about different kinds of drugs and, and uh, I also co-authored a couple of uh, one book on alcohol and one book on illicit drugs also for ABC Clio for another series and um, you know I enjoy writing a lot the advent of the computer and the internet has made it much easier uh for a person who used to fail courses, somebody who gets books published is a nice transition. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it enabled me mm-hmm. to compensate for my tendency to have a little attention deficit disorder. You know, go back over a paragraph. And um, mm-hmm. I'm also very involved with the um, well, tell us national. So- go ahead. Yeah, tell us a little bit about motivational interviewing. You said one of the chapters is about motivational interviewing. So well, what is motivational interviewing? How does that work? Well, it's funny because when, when friends of mine who are old-time psychotherapists take a look at it, they say this isn't really all that new. It's really what Carl Rogers wrote about in the 50s, sort of a humanistic uh, approach mm-hmm. where you work with the client at whatever level he's 
at, he or she is at, and try to develop discrepancies between their current behavior and their life goals and, you know, treat them with unconditional personal regard and empathy. And it's very different from the old style, you know, beat them over the head with a two-by-four kind of therapy that I grew up with in the 60s, you know, people screaming at you, you wear a sign, Mm -hmm. and and, and no labeling involved. It's the other thing. The old-style therapy always had, you know, you had to admit you were an alcoholic or an addict first, then we help you. So, of course, nobody wants to accept these stigmatizing labels. Uh, Who wants to be called Mm -hmm. a junkie or whatever? So, so, so it, 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 it's although it is not new, and it is based on the old Rogerian approach, it's new to the addictions field. You know, uh, people mm-hmm. in psychotherapists know about it, but addictions people use all kinds of uh, rather you know confrontative and um, difficult approaches. But uh, it, it's it's different from Rogers in that it has a, it's more formatted. It has like, uh, you know, like readiness ruler. How how ready do you feel uh, to change this goal? Uh, how, you know, and so it 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 has sort of a cognitive behavioral strategies that are that are formatted based on this humanistic approach. So it, it's pretty effective. I mean, there's been thousands and thousands of studies done on it. It's, it actually was first. It started out actually about thirty years ago. But since then, there's been you know thousands of thousands of research studies <coughs> validating its superiority. So uh, the, the third edition, which just came out uh, by uh, Miller and Ronlick, you know, is very different than the second edition. I have to revise all my courses now. So um, that's that's mm-hmm. it's nice to see um, addiction treatment move in that direction from you know. Treating people badly, really. I, I, I think that's sort of what was done at the beginning, and and of course, AA hasn't changed since 1935, and that was the other big you know strain in addiction mm-hmm. treatment. And um, there's a whole wealth of new um, self-help and mutual aid fellowships that have sprung up that that many counselors don't even know about, you know, or, or if they do know about it, they're sort of afraid of it because. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm antithetical to their dogma. So like smart recovery, which is uh, mm-hmm. based on Albert Ellis' uh, rational emotive behavior therapy, it's, it's, it's gotten pretty big. Uh, they, once I was chairing a um, in-service uh, conference for the agencies in northern New Jersey, and one of the counselors said, why don't we have a session on smart recovery? And so the chairman of the consortium slapped him down and said, no, no. They're anti-AA. And this guy, the chairman, he wasn't even himself a alcoholic <laughs> or AA member, but he was just being, you know, the uh, North Korean goody-goody sort of. And uh, But but there are a whole host of new programs. There's a 16-step program. There's something called Life, Life Ring, Secular Organizations for Sobriety. But it's a shame that they, this menu of options is not made available as often as it should be, to clients who don't really fit AA. I'm not knocking AA, but a lot of people don't like it uh, or don't get, don't, uh, they're not willing to say, okay, for the rest of my life, I'm never going to have a drink or accept a higher power, various mm-hmm. things that just, just 
doesn't work for them. Uh, so you have to have a menu of options or you'll lose all these people to uh, addiction if you mm-hmm. insist that they mm-hmm. do it a certain way. I don't mm-hmm. care which way it is. Uh, and oh, another thing that people are resistant to... Yeah, some to, people... Re- Go ahead. Mm-hmm. Yeah, some people respond very badly to AA, including myself. I never mind sharing my story. When I started going to AA meetings, I was looking for something to do besides drinking at night. You know, I figured, oh, well, uh, this will keep me out of the liquor store till it's closed. But, you know, I, I was abstaining when I started going to the meetings. Uh, a few months later, by the time I quit, I was drinking a liter of whiskey a day because they kept what? telling me I was powerless, alcohol was powerful. You know, my brain, my subconscious just takes that quite literally. It doesn't believe that God cures diseases. So that message of alcohol being powerful, me being powerless, there was no, nothing I could do but drink. I just had to right. finally check into detox so I didn't die from withdrawal, get cleaned up and said, I have to leave AA or I'll drink that. Yeah, there's um, Alan Marlad, who unfortunately recently left us, uh, was a good writer about uh, relapse prevention. And he talked about the abs- abstinence mm-hmm. violation effect. You know, so if you like, he says if you have one drink, mm-hmm. one drunk, you, you, no such thing as a tiny slip where you you have a beer and then you call your sponsor. You know, it's like might as well forget about it. You know, I can't go back. I've ten years clean and now I'm doomed. So um, that was a that was a um, of course that that fits in with all the stuff that you do with harm reduction. Uh, I have of people, mm-hmm, every, mm-hmm. every time I'm teaching a class in human services or whatever, uh, <coughs> we get a student who would get up and talk about his experiences in AA or NA, and you always get another student who would then get up and say, well, I just stopped. You know, and so what, what uh, mm-hmm. the, mm-hmm. the meta analyses have shown is that uh, half of people do stop on their own, but out of that, half of those are permanently stopped. So, so a fourth of people recover naturally. And nobody wants to hear that in the addictions field, obviously. It's really like sort of, oh, my God. It's like, mm-hmm. you know, having a, it's not kosher, natural recovery, spontaneous well, remission. It, oh, it's really, it's really interesting because uh, in uh, 2013, they published some analysis of NISARC, the National Epidemiological Study of Alcohol right. and Related Conditions. And, you know, they, they did a really lot of analysis, and they studied, they found, they looked at the lifetime remission rate. And they found right. that the lifetime remission rate for alcohol dependence was 90%. And everybody's like, wait a minute, this is supposed to be the progressive disease that killed everybody without treatment. What do you mean 90% of people get better on their own? Right. Well, it's very hard to measure success because, you know, everybody has a different measure. Some is, you know, total sobriety or being somewhat better or having an occasional drink. But And, and that's why it's hard to uh, put a exact figure on it. Um, my favorite approach is to, you know, put all these studies together and see if it can come out with an, an idea, like a, well, in a meta-analysis, just pool all the studies. And uh, But uh, mm-hmm. the, the 90% one I have not heard, but 
Yeah, but but it's always there's so many people. I mean, if you just talk to people, you see that they they mature out. You know, they like uh, I was unfortunately mm-hmm. a fairly heavy user of marijuana when I was in college, and uh, after a while, I stopped being friends with some of the people who were giving it to me, and it was making me depressed and out of it. And you know, so I stopped, and then then I got involved in the drug field, so it was not an option anymore. But um, it was uh, so. I, I'm an example. I mean, if you look at the epidemiology, you know, how many people who are 50 or 60 are, are pot smokers? Not that many. Uh, and teenagers, mm-hmm. you know, maybe a majority are. So people mature out. I mean, that concept's been around for 40 years or 50 years. Uh, but it, you know, it, a lot of research that's done never gets into practice, or it takes like. 20 years. Now you invent something great, and then 19 years later they finally start doing it. That's that's a fairly good average, according to the Institute of Medicine. Um, so I mean, a lot of that has to do with the dog, dogmatism that you see the dogmatic ideologies uh, in in counseling and psychotherapy and addictions treatment. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. also idea. their whole mar- their whole marketing strategy. The whole marketing strategy is so tied into you have to check into rehab for 30 days and pay, pay $30,000 or $60,000, whatever it is, or you're going to die of your addiction. You know, they, they can't – they don't want to tell you the truth that most people get better with no treatment, and most treatments – well, most treatments are fairly ineffective. Some are actually harmful. Uh, there's a few exceptions that are really good, like motivational interviewing is one that you mentioned. But yeah. Yeah, well, the 30-day thing is is, is is less true in 2014 because the managed care entities simply won't pay for it. Uh, so more than half of the those 28-day mm-hmm. guys, 28-day places have, have gone under. And uh, now that, you know, much more is outpatient, sometimes intensive outpatient mm-hmm. where you spend a chunk of your day in, at the place or just, you know, go to a clinic and see the therapist or go to a group um, you know, once or twice a week, mm-hmm. but uh, they, they overdid it in the '60s. They had these big, these big rehabs. You know, as you said, they ripped. They had, you know, they didn't have much more than a AA meeting and a cup of coffee, and they charged huge amounts. And there, there was a big uh, backlash. Mm-hmm. And so now, um, people who really do need inpatient care can't get it. Uh, there are rational. Mm-hmm. Schemes now, uh, such as the American Society for Addiction Medicine patient placement criteria, and says, okay, they got mm-hmm. six dimensions, and if you if you're bad at all six, maybe you do need to go into inpatient. But if you're bad in three or you're medium in three, you could go to the clinic once in a while or go to a meeting or something. So there is there are rational criteria right now. Uh, it'll be interesting to see if the uh, Affordable Care Act. And the um, parity regs that have come into being will allow more people, you know, to get help or seek help. But but they're they're cutting back a lot at the uh, federal level in the uh, Substance Abuse and Mental Health Care Administration. So in the addictions field, so we're not sure exactly what is is, is going to be like in five years. Um, but um, mm-hmm. the um, 
pretty popular now is something called stages of change and how people can uh, move from Mm -hmm. not thinking about a problem, which is a pre-contemplative, to thinking about it but not being ready to to take action. And then the third stage is action stage where you're actually going to do something, and then there's a maintenance stage after that. So that's been gotten very popular, not just in addictions, uh, but in, in everything, health, health education and all kinds of fields of, of endeavor. And it fits in with motivational interviewing also. So it's sort of a different world. Uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, sometimes I, 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 uh, I teach a course you know, somewhere where I'm an adjunct and I get, so I'm retired from my full-time work in, in the College of New Jersey so and I'll be forced to use a textbook, which makes me want to, you know, grind my teeth. It'll say, you know, well, first you look at mm. the first chapter mm-hmm. of the big book of AA, and it goes on like that. Uh, somebody's really stuck <laughs> back in the uh, Hoover administration. So, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, that's some of the things that are going on. And we have a national organization of addictions faculty. Um, programs teaching addictions counseling sprung up in the 70s and 80s, and only around 19, early 90s, did we come together to form a national group and have conferences. And we recently uh, merged some of our efforts with the addiction professionals at NADAC to form a national uh, addiction studies accreditation commission. This is something that's been in existence since, you know, the early 20th century in medicine and then in nursing and in social work. And uh, now it's finally, there are standards for teaching uh, addictions counseling that are up to date. And now there's also standards for halfway mm-hmm. houses, for alumni, uh, people who work with alumni of programs. So it's really, the, it, this, this is the era of, of modernization and uh, having criteria for Doing your work. Mm-hmm. Do you so, do you think the standards are good? I mean, you know, this it's always uh, something that I concerned about. You know, are is the majority of the twelve step majority going to say do it our way or the highway, or do you think that the standards are good and scientific and that we're getting well the, sign, the, the standards you know, that we came up with this accreditation uh, commission uses the standards that were promulgated in the document put up by the feds, uh, which I was involved with, called uh, Technical Assistance Protocol, uh, the uh, Addiction Counselor Knowledge, Skills, and Knowledge, Skills, and Attitudes of Effective Practice, Addiction Counselor Competencies, and it can be downloaded from the SAMHSA website. So that's like an up-to-date, evidence-based um document that we worked on it was mostly academics and so that's the basis for our accrediting higher education programs to make sure they're not teaching <laughs> stuff from 1935 you know uh, and uh, you know and uh, so so that that those are good standards and uh, they they're sort of based on the faculty standards that we developed about 10 years ago but now it's you know the the feds encouraged us to, to come up with something uh, a template and it's called TAP 21 
And so uh, I was glad to be part of starting this accreditation commission, and uh, we'll be meeting in Seattle at the joint uh, meeting of the faculty and the addictions professionals uh, in towards the end of September. If you go to www.incase.org, uh, there'll be a link to that conference. And uh, it's also on the NADAC. I'm not sure if it's org or com uh, website. And uh, we've got a band together. Or we just crushed. The, all the other disciplines want to take over. Mm-hmm. You know, the social workers, the the marriage and family counselors, the social—I said social workers, psychiatry, of course, you know—and um, they, they, there's always been this dichotomy between the professionals, so-called professionals, and the folk psychotherapy people, you know, rank and file counselors who came up, mm-hmm. and um, but they're they're more mm-hmm. they're more melding now. There's more of a career ladder where you can get an associate mm-hmm. degree and do this and then get a bachelor's degree and do that and maybe a master's and, and then go for state licensure, which exists in about 20 states now. Mm-hmm. A master's level licensure in education, mm-hmm. like there is in social work. But, and a lot of what we do, a mm-hmm. lot of the core functions that were promulgated uh, when we started out, you know, were sort of stolen from social work. Uh, so, but um, but the, the main thing is to have a, a, a treatment alliance to engage the client and be you know work with them collaboratively collaboratively to go through assessment and treatment planning and you know then be, be flexible if something doesn't work out if, if something needs more time you you re, you review and you revisit the plan. And the other thing is to realize that recovery is a lifelong mm-hmm. process. It's not, you know, as you said, 30 days in a, in a, in a rehab. Uh, that's just the beginning. If you're, God, if you've been drinking mm-hmm. for 30 years, what's 30 days? Nothing. So we, mm-hmm. you know, we, we, you have to work on a lifelong recovery plan and, what, and strengthen. Uh, and another concept that's pretty new in the field is, is uh, well, it's, it's it's an old sociology concept, uh, which was social capital, but now we use it as recovery capital. What do you have going for you that's going to keep you sober or not abused, you know, like family, job, education, uh, not be homeless? And so uh, that's part of the recovery-oriented systems of care is to build recovery capital. Uh, and um, so... Field has changed really dramatically um, in the last uh, ten or twenty years, and uh, mm-hmm. and uh, my big thing is is, uh, is is cross cross-pollinating disciplines, interdisciplinary stuff. I'm actually uh, mm-hmm. I'll come out and confess this. I'm, a, I'm my PhD is in anthropology, um, and from NYU. You mentioned NYU, so. Uh, Oh. And um, but I worked in the drug field, and I did my dissertation on these awful therapeutic communities at that time, which were treating people rather badly. And uh, so I had firsthand ethnographic information from the programs, and we um, 
That's a long time ago now. Those programs have changed a lot. And then I, when I first started teaching, I was hired out of a little drug program in the South Bronx, which used to be my grandmother's neighborhood, uh, and uh, which got broken into every night. I'd go to the hardware store. I think my main job is to go to the hardware store and get a box of nails and a hammer and some plywood and fix the place up. But uh, I got hired into <laughs> teaching uh, and uh for some time, I just taught sociology and anthropology and psychology, too, strangely, because I was in between all these fields. Uh, and uh, then when they started to get rid of full-time faculty uh, and f- actually fire people with tenure, my boss said, you didn't you used to work in a truck program? And I said, yeah, you better put something together around that. And I did. And I took off. And it was interesting in those days. Not only was the the divide between professionals and paraprofessionals, but also between drug and alcohol, which seems sort of a little nutty, because I went mm-hmm. for um, permission mm-hmm. for my program to be uh, approved by the Alcohol Certification Board. So I guess how I met this guy Norm Saul to go off at the text. So I went there and they said, "What has this got to do with alcohol?" I said, "Huh?" And and they didn't like that I had worked in, in, <laughs> in drug field. And they and they and they were sort of anti-intellectual as well, but they finally approved it, and you know, went from there. And they had a separate certification board for alcohol and for drug counselors. The drug counselors had no requirement to mm-hmm. go to school. They were most like street people and stuff. And I went to the school of hard docs. The alcoholics were more middle class. You know, a lot of fun social science you could do around all this, uh, and. Uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we are um, finally getting ourselves organized. And uh, I hope you can't hear the dog barking in the background. That would be very distracting to the uh, people listening to the broadcast. Uh, no, I can hardly hear, hear the dog at all. Uh, you don't hear it? No, it's, it's almost, no, barely. But it's Good. really quiet, so there's nothing That's to worry good. about. Good, I'm glad. Um, he's probably barking at a deer. After a lifetime of living in the, in New York, I we moved to our summer place in upstate New York, and it's quite a different ball game. Yeah, because the bear comes into the yard in a little bit of a shock. So um, <laughs> I'm probably busier now than I was when I was working full time in New Jersey. And um, mm-hmm. and having a good time visiting my I could we do go down to visit my grandkids in the city and rest of the family. Well, you know, I moved away from the Wisconsin farmland into New York City, so I went the opposite direction. Well, I saw the number when the number came up. It said Bronx, and I thought that was um, one of my relatives. Calling, you know, and so like the oh, the numbers just randomly assigned by the software. Oh, yeah, the the numbers just randomly assigned by the software. So I'm actually in Brooklyn. I'm oh, in Park Slope. Well, I, so I'm in a oh, really good slope. part of Brooklyn. Yeah. Well, I I I was one of the founders of the Park Slope Food Co-op. That's a long time ago. Oh, cool. Yeah, we moved. We just moved about a year yeah, ago. Yeah, that's out a of block away from me. That's funny. We moved about a year and a half away 
a year and a half ago from Brooklyn, downtown Brooklyn to up here in the boonies. And I main thing I miss is the uh, great, you know, ethnic foods and stuff of New York. And, uh, you know, Slope is a great place. But, um, now, speaking of ethnicity, that brings us to the other topic that we can talk about on the show tonight, which is because you are the editor-in-chief of a journal of ethnicity and substance abuse. So what are some of the patterns that, uh, with ethnicity and substance abuse? Well, okay. Well, it's funny. Um, we were meeting, just to give you a little background, we were meeting with um, the editors of uh, – the uh, Rutledge uh, Addictions Journals, and they, they were, we were signing a contract to uh, put out a journal of teaching in the addictions, which has subsequently gone under. But so the person who was the vice president, uh, it was Hayworth Press at the time, it wasn't Taylor and Francis, which it is now. Uh, anyway, um, the editor from Hayworth said, yeah, we're having a problem finding an editor for this new journal uh, used to be called Drugs in Society, and we wanted to give it an ethnic, make it ethnicity. And so I said, I put my hand up, of course. But uh, some of the things that we talk about, and, and I'm always, you know, I, I, we put out a template to reviewers. I said, we don't want to hear that 13.2% of Dominicans uh, use cocaine and 13.5% of Puerto Ricans use cocaine. It's just not of interest. Nobody's going to read it. They'll They'll put it in the recycling before they open it up. Uh, let's have something that has a little uh, content and uh, as much eth- ethnography, as, like actually descriptions of stuff that's going on on the street and in the field. Uh, one of the um, best couple of articles that I published early on in, in the journal was about um, women who were uh, crack users crack cocaine users. And, of course, the, the myth at the time was that they had no maternal instinct and they were, like, depraved. In fact, they, were, they would go to jail just because they were users. And in the, in the interviews right there, you know, in the, in the, uh, on the street, uh, after the authors had become, you know, ingratiated themselves or made themselves familiar, even living among them, uh, turned out they really did care a lot, and they just and they felt horrible that they weren't able to be adequate parents. So giving, giving uh, addicts a human face was one of the things I like to do with the journal. And, uh, and what's interesting also that, that has come out is that um, a lot of the stuff that, that goes on with Alcohol in specific is amazingly universal. For example, making a toast, you know, Happy New Year or Happy Retirement or whatever, or health. It's found in all cultures, and it's, it's surprising considering mm-hmm. the incredible diversity of of everything else that people do, like language and so on and religion. But 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 toast toasting is a big thing almost everywhere. So it's a, it's a interesting that it's become ritualized. And, and and part of the warp and woof of most cultures. And so uh, to, to another reason to say it's, it's really hard to come up with a total prohibitionist uh, perspective if it's part of, you know, the very fabric mm-hmm. of societies everywhere. 
and uh, and I try to get a lot of articles that are, have to do with what what, what goes on in um, other cultures uh, that is different. Uh, for example, in that, I recently published an article about India and and uh, Indian people uh, like uh, uh, little snacks, like in bags. If you ever go to Indian grocery store, you'll see these. They always got these bags of little snacks, like little bits of nuts and little bits of of uh, seeds and uh, things that were baked. It's called chat. So apparently, it's considered an addiction in um, certain parts of India called chaturpan, and so that that people would neglect their duties and you know not do their work and not take care of their kids because they're addicted to chat. So it, it, it's almost amusing because here's a concept of addiction that's made up. It's a, it's a, it's a social label. And in India, in certain parts of India anyway, um, rural areas, you could consider it to be a, you know, an, an addict to snacks and it's, it's a real moral failure and, and, you know, you need to be helped with it. And, and so, um, that's uh, another thing that's important that we cover in a lot of the articles is the stress that accompanies uh, immigration, if it is, if there is such stress. The stress of acculturating, of assimilating, is a big factor in the development of substance abuse. And not just assimilation, but failed assimilation. Like you get uh, people who move, let's say, into Texas from Mexico, and they never make it economically and they never make it into the American society, but they've already left up their traditional society. And so there's sort of a limbo in between. And that is pretty painful and sort of, you're sort of rootless and economic. And those people are very prone to drinking problems. They, 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 the, uh, the Mexicans refer to those kinds of people as uh, agringados, or you know, the word Mexican slang term for an American is a gringo. So the agringados are the ones who sort of became Americanized somewhat. But the Americans don't feel that way about them. And that's, that's something you can find in a lot of you know, a lot of studies about that and uh, uh, where people don't move into the mainstream and they just feel like pretty worthless, like they, the rug has been pulled out from underneath them. Uh, in, in, um, in Canada, uh, there's a tribe called the Inu, and the, and the parents had gone to like these missionary schools where they suffered a lot of physical and sexual abuse and were all alcoholics. But then the kids, in turn, their mm-hmm. kids in turn, became gasoline sniffers, you know, inhaled abusers. And they, all mm-hmm. the kids were sniffing gasoline. And finally, the tribal leaders went to the government and begged them to take the kids and put them in some sort of hospital setting. So, uh, and, and these are people who were like, you know, really beaten down by the, by uh, the corporations and the uh, mission schools, and uh, the government finally put out a pamphlet entitled "The Killing of the Inu," uh, which was about, you know, how they had been sort of destroyed uh, and uh, were in a lot of trouble, and uh, in, in, the, in among the Seneca. Indians of Upper New York State, uh, there was a lot of depression and drinking, 
and uh, one of their leaders said that uh, depression is a brain illness. It sounds like something coming out of the government in 2014, and he he had a vision mm-hmm. in which he he, he heard, um, you know, like a, a, a revitalization of their culture through temperance and through economic development, and he led a movement for that. Sort of like the story of uh, Bill Wilson, who founded AA. Uh, the, the the Indian leader named sort of a strange name to us nowadays. He was Handsome Lake, and so um, one of my students quipped uh, they should have called him Handsome L, like Bill Bill W. You know, and uh, <laughs> it's fascinating to compare the temperance movements of the 19th century to the ones of the 20th century. I mean, before there was AA, there were, there were millions of temperance movements, and they were associated with the, um, well, of course, I, I just mentioned the American Indian ones, and then and that was the only example. Mm-hmm. But then mm-hmm. the black church in the early 1800s had platform temperance platforms, and then the suffragettes in the early 20th century had uh, temperance platforms, and you had the famous Carrie Nation who went through the saloons with an axe and smashed all the the, the, the liquor barrels. But So it's interesting that um, temperance movements have always been social movements uh, and, and uh, you know, political mm-hmm. movements to a large extent. So we, we deal with some of that um, as well, and uh, it's important for people to know. I mean, I mean, it's true on the opposite side, too. You've got this demonization of marijuana that still exists today, where, you know, they, they even the, the official federal governmental body, the National Institute of Drug Abuse, you know, always talk about, oh, how, you know, the dangers of marijuana. And this goes back to the 30s where you had this crazy guy, Harry Anslinger, who worked under Roosevelt, who, who had um, put out, you know, uh, saying that this is a killer weed, and they put out this movie Reefer Madness, which my students love to see. It shows how over people smoking pot and they go crazy mm-hmm. and they kill people and you know they end up dead and pregnant and everything. So, um, <laughs> but we still have that. Yeah, I've, I've, I've seen that. I've seen that movie. I've seen that, yeah. and a lot of us have seen that. And the first thing that really kills everybody is when they see these guys smoking uh, these marijuana cigarettes, these reefers, as if they were tobacco and blowing all the smoke out. And it's like, what the fuck are you doing wasting all that good THC? <laughs> That's right, they do. They, they, they make a big cloud of smoke around them. Well, how about the fact that they're wearing suits and ties, too? Like, pot-smoking teenagers with mm-hmm, mm-hmm, ties? Mm-hmm. You know, so it's really, it's so anachronistic and bizarre that it's, uh, it's a group of students got a big kick out of it. Uh, I always try to... Uh, I don't know if I can download it or put it up on, you know, download it from YouTube and put it on some of my online courses, but I think they would they would learn a lot from it. Yeah, that's right. They do they do puff it out. They don't suck it in. Well, I guess the dialogue would be interrupted if they if they inhaled properly. <laughs> you wouldn't be able to have the the dialogue or the movement flow. There must be some some technical reason for this, uh, apart from ignorance. But I think that came out in 1938. Or 1940 at the latest, that movie, and so it was uh, mm-hmm. Roosevelt was. In, I think it's a picture of Roosevelt on the wall in the office of one of the prosecutors. So I said, "That's." I think that's always able to 
hone in on when that was from. Uh, now let's look at old yearbooks and things and see some of those strange anachronistic philosophies that people believe in in, uh, in, in uh, prior decades. So, um, like you see, uh, I once was chairman of a of a group. Uh, the feds used to fund uh, consortiums or consortia is probably the best word of of different prevention programs. So we had one in northern New Jersey, and there's one in central New Jersey, south New Jersey. So overall, I, put, I was assigned to write a newsletter for all the 80 consortia of the country. And uh, I had people submit articles, and occasionally I have to confess I used the name I saw in the phone book and wrote an article myself. But um, well, I can't remember the, uh, the rest of the meaning of this. Um, but um, I sort of lost track of the thread of what I was coming around to say. But, uh, yeah, the feds used to give a lot of money in, for pre- prevention in higher education, and now they don't. And uh, But uh, there were some of the people in the field were saying that if you could show that a majority of students don't use um, <coughs> drugs or or binge drink that you could reduce the actual incidence of such behavior and that that's mm-hmm. that doesn't seem to be working out i mean that that uh, yeah I'm a heavy drinker if i but if I know that the other students aren't i'm going to stop drinking that that just doesn't add enough to uh override you know the other motivations people might have for binge drinking then there's a big argument about that too about what is a binge drink years ago i thought binge drinking is when you know you got drunk on the weekend and you didn't say get sober till monday uh or or you hold you, you drink mm-hmm, your whole mm-hmm. welfare check you know uh but then now they use it to mean like if you had six drinks or or if it's a woman it's five so why is that a binge exactly? You know, like if you still have six beers over the course of an evening, why would that be called a binge? So uh, we had problems with that um, terminology, and there's two yeah, schools there's, of thought on that. Yeah, you know, there's a so. huge problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and yeah, there's um, a huge problem there because when you start defining uh, when you define heavy drinking. At such low amounts. I mean, there was an article that came out not too long ago. It found out heavy drinkers lived much longer than abstainers because they were defining heavy drinking at such low amounts. You know, he right. drank six beers one day in the last month. He's a heavy drinker. Yeah. It's like within the last month, right. So if somebody had six beers at a party and in the last month, they fall to this binge drinking category. And, uh, yeah, so uh, some people take pretty violent exception to that um, uh, definition. But uh, you have to constantly fight against all these dogmas that spring up. And uh, so we, we, we uh, I was very active in the, in the prevention field for a while, uh, and uh, but I've dropped out of that. Up here, I, I have to prevent binge drinking from, you know, the, the bears. That's about it. So, uh, and they... they can't, but they're finding their way to the liquor store very well, so we don't have too much of a problem there. But uh, yeah, we um, 
I wish I could remember what I was going to say about these uh, the higher education consortia, but uh, it'll probably come to my mind at three in the morning, long after this broadcast is over. Yeah. So um, some of the things we get into, and um, it, it's funny though that uh, some of the uh, in the template I drew up for the reviewers, I said, well, it has to have some contribute to some body of theory. You know, and and knowledge it can't just be some statistics that mean are sort of boring and don't really prove anything. And um, also, they has to be up to date in in, in the uh, theoretically. So uh, I recently had to reject an article, which, or maybe I had to have major revision made, where the person didn't even know about this theory that uh, you know you could reduce rates of heavy usage by demonstrating the actual rates. You know, I mean, this was like the received wisdom that you, you couldn't get a grant if you didn't model mm-hmm. your whole program around this, uh, you know, ch- uh, changing uh, inaccurate norms, uh, inaccurate perceived norms mm-hmm. about drinking, and that if you, if you could change, you know, so that, that, that was something that we had to fight about because like in, in the like college I taught, it was a, Commuter school, and the people were adults, and their norms were those of their community, uh, and their mm-hmm. cities. Whereas, if you were in a, commu- uh, a, a, a frat school, you know, where everybody lived on fr- campus, maybe lived in frat halls, maybe that theory had some relevance because everything was peer-driven. But it wasn't in a commuter school where people went home to their mm-hmm. families after school. So, so that we got, we were annoyed. I mean, all of us who worked at the urban colleges. We're so annoyed that we would have to follow this template that might work a little bit at a at a at a, at a you know fraternity intensive environment. So uh, we had to protest that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, we um, so I, I did that for a while, and uh, but prevention is really a, a rough one because you got to do it over and over. You got a new freshman class every year, and you know you've got it. You know, do whatever you do that that's an effective prevention technique, which we're not quite sure what those are yet after many decades, but uh, <laughs> you have to, do it, have to do it over and over and over and over. And even still, you'll see that you have no way of knowing if, you know, if the rates of cocaine use go up or go down or of drinking, if it has anything to do with what you did or it's just some broad sociological phenomenon that's, uh, you know, pendulum is swinging. Like now heroin is coming back. Uh, and uh, because mm-hmm. the, uh, because a lot of doctors overprescribed prescription opiates, and then there was there was a big crackdown against that by the by the federal and state governments, and so people could not just go from doctor to doctor and, and uh, get another script, and they and they would they all be sent to the central uh, place where it was all tabulated like in Albany. So, you know, if I went to one doctor and asked for a painkiller, you'd say, you know, you, you got a prescription a week ago from another doctor. He could see that right away on his database. Mm-hmm. So people could get these scripts, and, and, and the prices went up, too, and heroin is much cheaper. You know, so it's much simpler to go out on the street and mm-hmm. get a dime bag of heroin to, to, to try to go from doctor to doctor, begging them, pretend, go to the emergency room and pretend you have a migraine, you know, and... There's always one at every time I go to the ER. Mm-hmm. But uh, they, they, um, 
So now we do have a heroin epidemic coming back, and even in Vermont, there was a big thing about it there in Massachusetts. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, people come up to Hudson from New York City, you sort of near where I live, up to New York, and on the train, on the Amtrak, and they pedal their wares uh, in the uh, poor areas of the city. And so uh, it spreads that way. People go to new areas. Mm-hmm. We, we have such a demonization of opiate users in the United States, which right, I think absolutely. is just really problematic. Um, you know, if opiate users have a supply of opiates, they're pretty benign people. They are. In fact, there would to be these big gang wars in New York. You know, when I was coming up, there was gang fight. And then when the heroin came in, they all mellowed out. Uh, and they, uh, you know, and, uh, and too, and heroin by itself doesn't do anything really to you unless you overdose because you got a, a bad batch which had some fentanyl mixed in with it or something. You know, you, we, we had one guy at Phoenix House named mm-hmm. Donkey Riley who was 75 years old. Uh, that was a great name. Uh, and he was, you know, he was perfectly mm-hmm. fond of this physician narcotics addicts who lived you know, their whole lives addicted. And one of my uh, editorial board members, Joe Westermeyer, oh, he's a famous anthropologist of drugs, uh, sort of the same subfield that I'm in, he wrote a great book about opium dens in Laos, and which was sort of like family hangouts. You could go there and you'd get a bowl of soup and you'd bring your family and people smoked opium. They played music, you know. So it was mm-hmm. like a very different... That's the kind of contrast we like to play off on. Yeah, that there is a stigmatization. Uh, I, I said uh, of people who use drugs, sort of a moral model of it. And, uh, and of course, for mm-hmm. women, it's worse. The stigma is worse for women uh, drug users or women drinkers. Uh, if a man drinks heavily, mm-hmm. oh, that's, that's that's just old Bill, but... Woman drinks heavily. She's a you know slutty, you know sort of. She sort of loses her her moral status uh, and and becomes uh, demonized mm-hmm. and and you know so um, it's very hard for them to get reaccepted into their social networks of their families uh, if they, if they get better. Whereas it's much easier for a man. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of what, books about stigma as applied to um, female substance users that came out and kind of sitting on my shelf getting ready to write a paper, you know, a background paper for different faculty on teaching about stigma. And the stigma is an old concept in sociology, but it's interesting. Nowadays we're starting to say let's reduce the stigma of substance abusers as a way of promoting recovery and acceptance of the uh, of the user or former user. Yeah. Uh, so. Yeah, I, you know the whole movement. The whole movement I see right now is is this big movement to remove the stigma from ex users, but right. the ex users want to totally stigmatize the current users. Oh, uh, that's interesting. I think it's well, it's problematic. It, 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 that is. Well, our the, the, there's something called Faces and Voices of Recovery, which is the 
people who have come out of the closet mm-hmm. who are ex-users and say, you know, I, my name is uh, so-and-so and I have 10 years of recovery. Uh, and, 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 and it has promoted reduction of stigma. But I think, I mean, the more enlightened people, you know, who follow like motivational interviewing want to reduce the stigma for users too. Uh, so there has been a change mm-hmm. in that. You know, don't, you're not just a junkie or a lush or a drunk. Uh, words that the former users will use themselves. I mean, I remember uh, the uh, when I worked at the therapeutic communities, uh, they call themselves dope fiends, recovering dope fiends or ex-dope fiends, and, they, mm-hmm. and of course the uh, AA members call themselves drunks. You know, just a bunch of drunks trying to stay sober one day at a time. It seems like an unfortunate thing not to move past that as your defining status. Uh, although some, some do. I mean, I had a mm-hmm. babysitter who who uh, went to Narcotics Anonymous, and then gradually she stopped going. You know, and she became very she moved up pretty high in the health fields. And uh, I don't want to say anything else that would be more identifying, but uh, there's mm-hmm. you know there's some that just. You know they don't want to go year after year, decade after decade, then they, and they and they move ahead, hopefully. Um, but but some people get sort of ghettoized with mm-hmm. the ANA. They just like it becomes their whole life, and you know they they don't they don't have any friends or oh, yeah. contact outside of that. Yeah, it's, it's that's 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 sort of unfortunate because there is more to life, and uh, and that you know and then when these people become counselors we don't want them to do that to their clients you know just to make them little little cult members you know that uh i've done a lot of work mm-hmm. in the global mm-hmm. field outside of in the addictions field i've done it within the political uh field too and i've written about some political cult groups interesting to compare them to the early therapeutic communities who do some of the same they do some of the same things, and uh, but I not mention too many of them. They'll come after me, you know. The uh, <laughs> extremist political groups that uh, yeah. perennially crop up. But uh, yeah, so I, I, I basically I, I expanded the concept of a sect from religion into psychotherapy and into politics and because a lot of the early groups were very cult-like and you know dogmatic and and uh, insular and um believe that was the only way out and um you know when i tried to leave they said you know you don't go out in that sick world you know stay with us and uh gets sort of tired of being yelled at but they don't do that much yelling anymore so that's they, they take um, mm. Department of uh, Corrections people, and um, Corrections doesn't want abusive techniques used on people in a, as an alternative to sentencing. And the uh, clients themselves would prefer to stay in, in jail cells than to be yelled at or wear a sign or you know all kinds of anachronistic uh, techniques that were practiced. So. They've moderated a great deal uh, in, in those drug programs. Mm-hmm. Thank God. But, 
as you said, we still don't know that if the if the success rate is that great uh, in many of them. So, any other questions yeah, the, you wanted to? Yeah, the success rate of those. Well, we're about running out of time right now. So, okay, uh, what would you like to leave us with this evening? Leave you? Oh my goodness! Uh, well, the importance <laughs> of taking, if you're interested in getting into this field, is the importance of taking, going through a college curriculum, which is either already accredited or is attempting to be accredited, and which has a evidence-based practice system that it teaches you, which is ethical and which is culturally sensitive and which um, builds collaboration with the client rather than stigmatizing them. So, you know, hopefully the – and those are things we look for. And um, not, it's not enough to have been a drinker to be an addictions counselor. So I guess that's one of my major – I had to drag people screaming and kicking who would come to me to, to get credentialed, but they didn't want to get a degree. And they didn't want to take the math. They didn't want to take the English. I, the, the, the guy in New Jersey who was the head of the certification board said they need that remedial English more than they need the drug courses because they're going to fail all the exams, can't do any of the paperwork if they don't, you know, have the basic literacy skills. So mm-hmm. that, that's one of my things that uh, I just have to constantly do. But that it's, we don't have that totally anti-intellectual attitude anymore amongst the uh, users and the counselors that we used to have. Um, you know, where it's like... Mm-hmm. And, but of course, colleges don't, you know, colleges really have a problem graduating people. You know, they, 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 the average graduation rate at a community college is like seven years. It should be two. They have to keep churning and churning through the remedial mm-hmm. courses and then they fail it and take it again, take it again. I, mean, I might be one of those myself if it was algebra. I don't know. I wasn't very good at it. Um, <laughs> so it's not something that only we share. Uh, we were at terrible graduation rate at my school, you know. And uh, Although many of my students did go on to complete their BSW and MSW and get certified, you know. But the, the, in general, our graduation rate was not too cool. Yeah. So that's, that's about well I think I can agree that it's really it's really important for people that are going to be drug and alcohol counselors to have a basic I I I had some I dealt with when I was a client who definitely were not very educated and didn't know what the fuck they were talking about okay yeah well I'm glad we agree uh, we're going to have okay so uh, we're running us. I want to thank you very much for being our guest this evening, Peter Meyer. Okay. It was, it was a lot of fun talking to you tonight. Thank you so much. Hey, good night, everybody. Good night. We'll see you all next week with uh, another show. Okay. Okay, great.